that's just the nature of biotech companies. They have to tell a good story to move on. So right. there is that aspect. You need to be skeptical, but that doesn't mean they're, they're lying all the time. I think they make a good case that the data is not all that compelling. They haven't really closed the door that the data is bad. Welcome to Behind the Idea, where we break down investment stories from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes investment analysis work. I'm Daniel Schwarzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. Today, we're looking at an article about proteostasis therapeutics, ticker symbol PTI, a development stage biopharma company that's facing tough questions about its lead drug for cystic fibrosis. First, some background and a disclosure. Seeking Alpha is a website where investors around the world share their investment ideas and analysis. Neither Mike nor I have any positions in any company discussed on today's podcast, and nothing on here should be taken as investment advice. If you like what you're doing, please leave a review and subscribe to Behind the Idea on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Today's topic, Seeking Alpha author Carousdale Capital Management says investors need to dig past proteostasis's optimistic reading of its clinical data, especially an unusual wrinkle among its placebo patients. The theme of today's episode is clinical data is in the eye of the beholder. So Mike, could you start off giving us some background on proteostasis just as a company? Sure, Daniel. Thanks. I had to look up proteostasis on Google to find out what the term, what the company name means. And I found that proteostasis is actually a portmanteau between protein and homeostasis. And I just wanted to nice. start out by highlighting biotech companies' proud tradition of portmanteaus. You know, Amgen is or could stand for American Genetics. We have Biogen, Biological <laughs> Genetics. Okay. GenFit, Genetic Fit, Cell Genes, Cellular Genetics. The point I'm trying to make just to get us started is that Proteostasis is joining a long list of companies that have a portmanteau or portmanteau type name. Proteostasis is focused on proteins and to some extent genetics. Some diseases are related to proteins that fail to fold and look I'm not a scientist but this can implicate genetics in some respects because DNA and RNA are part of the protein creation process in cells. Fixing proteins that are misfolded can be a big opportunity. On Proteostasis's website, they mention some of the biggest and most challenging diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's. Their lead drug is for cystic fibrosis, which is genetic and which basically makes mucus accumulate in your lungs. It's a rare disease, only one in about 3,000 people of Northern European heritage have it, so it's not super common, but it's nasty. You just are always have basically bacterial infections in your lungs, and that's what causes 80% of deaths in cystic fibrosis patients, and the life expectancy for someone with cystic fibrosis is short relative to the general population, about 42 to 50 years. So it's you're just always sick throughout your entire life, and you tend to die early of lung infections. So it's a, it's a big deal. I think about a $13 billion market 
according to a quick search I did. Okay. So that's the area where proteostasis is operating. And in the past month, their stock more than doubled, partly on an announcement of a breakthrough therapy designation for this drug they have for cystic fibrosis. The company was about to raise capital as the stock had increased and investors got excited about the clinical results. And then a few days ago, Carisdale Capital Management released a report on its website and on Seeking Alpha, which caused the stock to drop about 20%. So Daniel, let's talk quickly about Carisdale since they're sort of an interesting Seeking Alpha author and an interesting fund. Right. Yeah. Carisdale is to some extent, the social media hedge fund in the industry. I think they started, the founder is Sam Adrangi, who I think really got his start in that early 2010s period where a lot of questionable Chinese companies were trading via reverse mergers on the U.S. markets or otherwise were just available on markets as short opportunities. Carousel made a name for themselves picking apart those theses and becoming sort of a short biased author. They do write long ideas, but they, they're better known for their short ideas. They're very public. They have some, I wouldn't say that they're overly dramatic, but they're, they're interested in getting the word out. They will try for a short idea on Global Star. I think they rented out a auditorium of some sort in New York City to make the case. They're, they're willing to go the extra. They believe in presentation and getting the word out. Beyond that, they tend to do very thorough work when they put together a thesis. And like most short idea authors and most short selling hedge funds, they do tend to draw quite a bit of scrutiny and attention from other investors. Yeah, I think of them as, I think they describe themselves as activist shorts, which has kind of been a term that's come around in the past 10 years or maybe even fewer. And yes, they're, we were talking before the podcast and I sort of placed them as being one of the most successful funds with meaningful assets under management that also sort of embrace social media. They're active on Twitter. They're active on their own website. They're active on Seeking Alpha. In a way, that's one of the th ways that you could characterize them as innovative is that the communications apparatus that they have is really pretty outstanding relative to other companies. And also they tend to be investigative in their approach. So that's where they really make their bread. Uh, right. They're not just making valuation shorts of Netflix because it's trading for some ungodly PE. They tend to highlight where something management is saying is not lining up with their analysis, I think. Yeah, their theses are often, something's fishy here is often sort of a theme that Carisdale likes to hit on. And so with that, yeah, let's get into this particular argument about proteostasis therapeutics, because they really hang their hat on a couple of things. The most recent clinical trial that proteostasis undertook for its drug PTI-428 compared the performance of patients who were on the existing normal treatment regime for cystic fibrosis. I think it was called Kaleidico by Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Editor's note, the drug involved in the trial was Arcombi, not Kaleidico. Kaleidico is another cystic fibrosis drug for Vertex, and it comes up in the article, but it's not the one that was a part of this major trial result. Back to the show. 
that was the control group. The placebo group was given the normal drug and then a placebo in addition. And the experimental group that was trying out proteostasis's drug, PTI-428, had, had one set of outcomes and the control group had the other, the placebo group had the other, another set of outcomes. And what Kerastale noticed was that first, the placebo group seemed to have, was only four patients, first of all. So it was a really small placebo group. And when you consider that the experimental group had a dozen or so patients in it, why were there only four people in the placebo group? One thing I think we're going to keep coming back to is that clinical trials are tough to structure. So keep that in mind as we talk. But why not have a sort of comparable population count in each branch of the trial? If you're giving standard of care plus placebo, or you're giving standard of care or typical treatment plus uh, PTI-428, why not have some other people just on the normal drug regime and and get a better sample size for your placebo group. But Kerastale takes the argument even further. They're not just saying that the sample size was too small. They're also saying that the patients that were in the placebo group performed worse than you would otherwise expect. And then Kerastale says that proteostasis turns around and says, look at the big gap in performance for patients who are on on our drug versus the patients that aren't on our drug. And Kerastale just makes this point that if the patients that weren't on the drug are doing way worse than you normally expect, then the relative performance is going to seem so much better for the drug. So I think that's one of the key, that's, that's the key argument. And the reason that I think it's the most important part of this article is that it shows the level of sophistication that Kerastale is willing to bring to the table. Right. Oftentimes, analysts will look at the company's presentation of results and leave it at that or try and work within the framing that management has provided. But Kerastale is like really breaking it down and raising some meaningful questions. So what did, what did you think about this placebo group thing, Daniel? I think it's a, within the constraints of an article where you can only make one case, I think it's a, it is a sophisticated analysis a convincing one. It leaves open questions. I think we talk a lot about when you get out of your expertise, how to recognize the right arguments. And I think in theory, there could be other stuff going on here. It could be that cystic fibrosis is corrosive. Maybe the maybe the baseline isn't zero, it's negative. But I think the point, as you mentioned about the four-person placebo group, raises questions and I think what it does is puts Carousel's analysis on the terms of what's happening with the company because the company was, as Carousel mentions, IPO'd at eight, was down to somewhere around two for a long time. Then they announced these results. They went much higher. It then kind of tailed off, and then we'll get to why it, the stock jumped again. But oftentimes you should focus on the fundamentals, but when trying to understand what's going on, what's driving the stock price, sometimes you have to look at things like that and say, why did the stock double? Oh, it must be this news. And I think they've gone to that news and said, well, not so fast. And I think that was a, it was an effective way to do so. And it was, while I did say that you should be cautious about venturing out of your comfort zone with too much confidence, 
what I like about their analysis is that it is, at least on its face, very logical and very effective in that sense. So I think that's, I think what you're saying, like you spell it out, why wouldn't, there could be a good reason. I think you're right. It's hard to make clinical trials. It's hard to find enough people who have cystic fibrosis. It's a phase two is you're mainly testing for safety more than anything else. Right. So. Oh, that triggered a couple of thoughts uh, for me. So one is this issue of, you know, a common, especially scientists will say that this, they'll say, don't invest in biotech if you don't, if you're not a scientist and you don't understand science. So this goes back to what you were saying about staying within your circle of confidence. It also goes back to the idea that data is, is in the eye of the beholder. So I was thinking before the podcast that I'm a little bit skeptical that you need to know the science here. You just need to understand what the company is trying to measure and how confident it's reasonable to be about measuring it. And we'll get into all the different layers of how proteostasis set about doing this and potential weaknesses or how data can become this sort of refractory thing that makes you look at it in different ways. But I do want to, I think that there's a, there are two kinds of mistakes that I think you can make in this area of investing. One is that you can overweight scientific expertise, and I think it's a mistake to do that. It's a mistake to give too much credit to the people who run clinical trials. It's mm -hmm. a mistake to defer to them too much. And I think that you do need to think for yourself if you're going to operate in this space, and that there are opportunities for people who have a little bit of statistical understanding to put these kind of puzzles together, whether or not they've ever put on a lab coat. And so that's one side. And then the other side is that it's a mistake to undercount the data. And it's a mistake to dismiss information that is not consistent with your overall beliefs. Those two things together bring me to the framework that I like to use is, is there enough information here that can meaningfully affect my decision? And it's not, is the data perfect? And it's not, is the data have one flaw? It's, is it sufficiently persuasive? And I think mm -hmm. what Karisdale has done is they've made a case that the data are not sufficiently persuasive. To get into just briefly a couple of things, Karisdale actually does compare the placebo groups from other trials to the performance of placebo groups in this proteostasis trial. And they found that the, the worst degradation of those with large sample sizes one is 371 patients. It's close to zero or between zero and negative 1% for right. the performance differential. So the performance, so the poor performance in the placebo group here, the worst performance is between 15 and 20%. So it's a meaningfully, it is seemingly anomalous. Right. Or at Good least I, I buy the argument at least. The other thing is that the improvement Karastel sort of mentions this, we're not going to focus on it, but they say that the improvement in the, in the experimental group may be within the variance, normal just statistical noise around how your lung performance. So right. that, that brings me to, I'm going to come back to this, it's hard to structure a clinical trial. So like, why, why is the placebo group so small? We don't really know. We don't find out from this article what the management's explanation for that is. The other thing is there's not that many 
We know that the disease is rare. There's not that many people in the experimental group either. That's normal for this phase of trial. But it's also a 28-day trial. That's, that's short. You know, it's just... Right. So I think not to take one side or the other on this, but I think what investors need to keep in mind is that companies are faced with, you know, they have limited resources. This company is a really small cap company. They're sort of living, they're burning through cash and living, hoping to show enough promise that they can raise enough cash to move on. They need to operate under these tight resource constraints. And so the company management doesn't have to be trying to deceive the market to get into these situations. And they just are, you could imagine a situation at least where management is doing its best to prove that they're onto something and be right. fair in the presentation of the results. But they also just, they can only find so many patients. They only have so much drug to administer. They can only run the trial for so long before they run out of money. So to inject a little bit of balance in something, or maybe that's even just a fair critique of Carisdale here. They sort of imply a nefarious agenda. That it's nefarious yeah. and deceptive on purpose. And I think it's important for us to consider that some of these things that Carisdale is observing and pointing out, there's certainly things that we need to pay attention to, but I don't think that we can always leave to the conclusion that the company is doing something deceptive on purpose. There's just, that's just the nature of biotech companies. They have to tell a good story to move on. So right. there is that aspect. You need to be skeptical, but that doesn't mean they're, they're lying all the time. That's an important distinction, I think. Well, and that's where one of the, I think, to go to the next big pillar of the argument, at least of why the stock went higher, the stock bumped again recently because proteostasis released a press release saying that the FDA had awarded them a breakthrough therapy designation, meaning that the FDA would work more closely with them through the trial process, as I understood it, and that they would try to fast track the process. And as I understand it, the reason that that designation exists is for dr drugs that have the potential of improving or therapies that have the potential of improving results in diseases that don't have great therapies available and that are sort of more select, that are a more, it's not cancer, it's a more narrow field of people who are suffering from this. And so the need to serve that specific population is more urgent. And so that is where the stock then took a big leg up. And what I think is interesting from the company perspective, and this is where you, you were just saying about the you have to tell a story. They doubled in December when they announced the trial results. And then the next day, they said we're offering shares and it was 25% dilution. And then they did it again. In this case, they were about to offer 25% dilution. They waited a week after the press release. Carousdale Capital released the article around the same time and they the company ended up pulling the offering. I also think it's interesting because a lot of times we look at companies who do this and say, oh, look at them diluting their shareholders or, or maybe they're playing a game here or whatever else. When you listen to startup entrepreneurs talk about how they run their business and you listen to the philosophy of any business that needs to go for capital, 
there's differing schools of thought, but one of them is raise as much capital as you can whenever it's available. Strike while the iron is hot. And so I think that's sort of what Proteus is. And in in the end, they moved too slowly in this round, but that was sort of what they they were aiming for is this idea of we have good. And again, I'm not saying this is a nefarious thing, but we've released good news. We would like to raise more money to be able to deliver on this news. So I think it's interesting, not only is clinical data in the eye of the beholder, but sometimes the behavior of management teams, it becomes easy to read into that by whatever bias or viewpoint you might have, which sometimes discounts what their motivations might be or what other logical reasons. And I, you know, I don't, do you think it's a good sign or a bad sign that they're raising money? Is that a red flag or is it logical? I, I have a lot of, so I, I agree with your, I'm one, one thing I agree with that you said is that, you know, in, in sort of tech software entrepreneurship, it's a big achievement to raise money. They're usually in private markets, right? The, usually from venture right. capital, but it's seen as part of the heroic journey of the tech entrepreneur to raise additional money. And the size and valuation is subject to a lot of attention and interest and enthusiasm from just the general public. You know, Uber raised X amount of money and now they're valued at X billion dollars. That was part of sort of the enthusiastic part of the Uber story. Maybe not so much recently, but uh, <laughs> right. But the that's, glory that's days. Another, yeah, we don't need to get into into Uber. But in publicly traded small cap biotech, there's a different perspective that competes with that perspective, and it comes down to several things. One is that. If you raise money on the public markets and you're still in a certain early stage of clinical development, one investor I spoke to years ago told me that that's sort of a last-ditch effort after you've exhausted all VC funding. So there's a reputation among publicly traded early-stage biotech companies that you've failed to raise VC funding, and so now you're turning to the public markets, which may be a little friendlier to your story than the smart money VCs are. I buy that perspective. I think that there are certainly many examples of companies that tell a story, raise capital, and then never seem to reach market or take a really long time to reach market. And you begin to wonder in biotech whether These people had an idea, they have so much faith in the idea that they're going to continue to raise capital no matter sort of how many times they fail to prove their case in the clinic. Or, you know, even in some cases, it might even be worse and they're sort of being deceptive and raising capital to enrich themselves rather than actually pursue innovation. So I think that there's a mix there. I think that there are, again, it's hard to structure a clinical trial. It's hard to bring anything to market you need to be overly optimistic in disposition to sort of undertake this task. It's really risky, it's hard, and your success rate is not high. So I think that there's just, is raising capital a good sign? It's needed, but I, investors probably need to make a decision for themselves when companies are raising a lot of dilutive capital, 
whether they're confident that that capital is going to continue to contribute to progress towards approval or whether it's potentially something else is going on. Right. Good point. Yeah, that's fair. So let's go back to Carisdale's argument then. Were there any other things that stood up? We've talked about how they broke down the trial data itself, which is which is the fundamental analysis on a biotech company like this, but anything else that stood out to you in in their analysis or in their thesis? I was kind of, I read this the first time and I thought that Carousel had a slam dunk in terms of, first of all, I think that they really did bring information to market with the critical look at the placebo group. And I found that to be really compelling. There are other aspects of the argument. And I think it's worth sort of spending some time on this because it illustrates data's in the eye of the beholder and it illustrates that it's tough to make a clinical trial. It also illustrates just that medicine is really tough and complicated. And I, mm. I know that I don't necessarily always appreciate this when I'm looking at biotech companies. So this drug is supposed to enhance the compensation for this misfolded protein that the other drug, Vertex's drug, provides. So this drug is supposed to it's supposed to enhance whatever the basic current treatment regime is. And it's supposed to do this on the molecular level in some respect. It's supposed to operate on the protein itself. Mm-hmm. But then you look also at some of the things Carisdale talks about with respect to this protein. There may be only one or two of these molecules in a cell. One thing that Carisdale talks about is how difficult it is to measure this on the molecular level. And then if you look at the trial data, you kind of are zooming all the way out. So on the molecular level, you have this protein that's messed up. Then Mm -hmm. on kind of the tissue or organ level, you have this mucus buildup in the lungs, which leaves you vulnerable to bacterial infections. And then the main data point that Carisdale and that proteostasis is looking at is your ability to exhale. So because you have mucus in your lungs, what doctors are measuring in this clinical trial is the ability for you to breathe out. And I think it's important to look at, so you have the drug is supposed to operate on one level that's that's microscopic. And then our measurement is operating on this level that's our normal lived experience of breathing. And that ties into this idea of data's in the eye of the beholder in the sense that think of all the steps that need to happen in between where other things could happen and just think of the difference in perspective. It's a very different measurement, what's happening with the molecule versus what's happening with a patient breathing in front of you. And you look at other drugs, Sarepta Therapeutics had a drug for Duchenne and it's an analogous situation where the drug is supposed to operate on one level and then they wound up seeking approval by seeing how far the patients could walk in a certain amount of time. And so it's important to keep in mind, I think it's good that Carisdale flags all these different levels on which the data operates. They get into some in vitro results that look noisy. They come back to this fact that the drug is difficult to measure because it operates on a rare disease to start out with. And then on top of that, the biomarkers are not easy to find and the data can be noisy. I think that's interesting. I think it's worth pointing out. I don't know if I was as compelled by the arguments that hinged around that just because it seems like it can cut either way. And we've also seen biotech companies, or at least I talked to my friend who's a doctor. 
I was like really skeptical of this drug company that had come out. They were doing something with a dye or some kind of chemical that's never been a medicine before and injecting it right. into tumors. And my friend was like, look, sometimes it just works and you don't know why. And so when we get into things, then, and then it's just, and then it's a drug because it worked. Right. You know? Right. You don't know. Right. So when we get into things like dose dependent response, especially in noisy data where, the, where you're looking for rare molecules that are hard to find within a cell. I think it was great treatment of all of that data, and they certainly, Karisdale brought a good perspective to all of that. I'm not sure that it cuts so strongly against proteostasis as maybe it was billed within the article. For that aspect of the argument, where they sort of were breaking down all these different noisy aspects of the data I thought they brought useful perspective, but I didn't see it as kind of a slam dunk negative for the company. It's hard. <laughs> I guess it keeps coming back. Data is in the eye of the beholder. There's a lot of ways I'll wrap here on, on this particular point, but you have statistical significance. You have all these numbers. You, have, you measure everything so carefully. And then we see in this article the many, many ways that even though you have this precision of measurement, you still are left with your own perspective and interpretation. And that's the key to me, I think. In biotech, you can get the data, but then just because it's numbers and just because there are confidence intervals, you still have to sort of check yourself and figure out what perspective you're bringing to the data and how else you could look at it. I think that's the strength of Karasdale's argument in terms of they brought a new perspective to the data, but it's also a potential weakness because I think maybe some of the interpretations they're bringing are affected by their prior views. Right. I, I wonder what the why we could never find the data for why whenever I, I had a problem, my brother told me to suck it up. That somehow worked. Uh, that oh. therapy. <laughs> I think, we, yeah, we can found it. Yeah, let's raise some money, Daniel, uh, <laughs> on that. This, suck it up. Suck it, up suck it up at all. Suck it up at all. It's an enhancement to other therapies. So we couple it with something else that works. We need to come up with a portmanteau for the for the company first. I think that's going to be oh, our first priority. Yeah. Oh, I think we're. I'm having trouble because <laughs> the name seems like a tough one to drop into a portmanteau. Do you think you would be an anomalously bad placebo patient, Daniel? <laughs> yeah, I probably... Like scrape your knee, would you just anomalously <laughs> start really degrading in, in performance? Yeah. Even with suck it up? <laughs> I, I, I think I would be so hard-headed about the trial that I would just will myself to get better with whatever it is. And... Oh, I don't. I don't know if I don't know if that would help, but I think I would be a difficult patient. Yeah, no, that would be bad because if you're an anomalously good performing placebo patient, then you can potentially impair the clinical trial results because the drug might do something, but if you're unlucky and all your placebo patients also happen to do really well, then it will look like you didn't have any effect. So that would be right. Well, it's interesting uh, to come back to Karisdale. Coming back to that's a good segue back to Karisdale. So that was an interesting thing just quickly about the placebo thing was that they were saying that was anomalously bad. 
and it's just unusual to see that uh, rather than anomalously good placebo information. Uh, well, anyway. and I, I, I think it's it's again it's just a good example of not and the same as we shouldn't take their article at face value and no reader should, but the fact that they didn't stop at, oh, they have data. They said, let's look at the data and see how to make sense of it. I think that's important at every stage of the process while at the same time guarding against convincing yourself that you've figured it out, being open to new information. But I think that's, yeah, I think that's what we both like about this argument. Right. And just one last point on that. I think that this was something, when I ask people who have been involved in drug development about this, because I've seen it before and I've, I've thought that something nefarious was going on, Kerastale talks about lots of different trials disappearing from the clinicaltrials.gov website or the company not following up on some trials that it had clearly undertaken and giving investors additional updates there. This is another example where it's kind of from Kerastale's point of view, clearly if they believe to some degree that the company is not being forthright about the data, then they're going to ascribe a kind of nefarious intent there. But talking to some people who've worked for pharma companies, I get the impression that, look, proteostasis has competitors and is trying to develop a unique intellectual property and a unique way of attacking cystic fibrosis it's not necessary, even if the data are good, it's not necessarily in the company's interest to disclose everything publicly. And so again, it comes back to the data's in the eye of the beholder. Is the absence of the evidence, evidence of absence, or is proteostasis potentially just protecting some information that, that the company has? Right. Let's kind of figure out what we think here about this argument. I, I think I on first read, I was really compelled by it. And, and I think maybe you were a little bit more questioning of it on first read. But where do we land now that we've kind of gone through some of these, break, broken down the argument a little bit? As I talk about a lot, I, I look also at the reaction and not just the market reaction. The market sold off. The uh, secondary offering was called off. You know, whatever the current specifics are, clearly the market reacted to this and found it significant. I don't know whether or not that's meaningful, but I do look, I like to look at the comment streams on Seeking Alpha to get an idea of what are people who probably are holding shares in the stock thinking. So in general, the comments, the comments actually make me feel more confident about the thesis because there is a lot of that sort of knee jerk, you know, why aren't you, the FDA just gave them a breakthrough therapy designation, why should we trust you over the FDA, that sort of thing, which leads me to believe that the market con or the sort of investor consensus is not very strong. So I, I don't know, I, I guess I digress there. Maybe I should just stop for a second. Did you or do you look at any of these other sort of contextual things when you are talking about these biotech companies? I didn't really read the comments. And I think, well, this, this raises an interesting point that I was thinking about earlier. I think that if you're going to invest in this space, you should, and I think Karis Dale did this, you should aggressively come to an independent understanding of the information. Right. And I think that Karis Dale has done that, and I think that that has permitted them to come to a variant view 
and do so with a fair amount of conviction. And I think that's why there's been strength to this and why the market has reacted to the, to the thesis. I think that that cuts both ways, though. One thing about this article that struck me was that for all the over-optimism that management is supposed to have shown, we don't see a lot of quotations of management or articulations of management's perspective on the data other than as set up for debunking. You know what I mean? Right. So we don't get yep. a lot of, we don't get, we don't read the press releases and Carousel doesn't sort of excerpt from the press. We often see this in short ideas that management, the analyst will make some effort to sort of critique the PR moves that management is making. And one thing that we don't have a lot here, which I think is, again, it cuts both ways. It's, it's a credit to Kerastale that they take such a rigorously independent approach that it, it almost seems like, at least, their investment process is sort of brackets all that information and sets it aside so that they can be as independent as possible without looking at the press releases and stuff. But on the other hand, if the company is supposed to be tooting its horn too much and full of too much air, it's interesting that we didn't evaluate the rhetoric that the company is using. And I wonder what would have, what the argument would have looked like if we had seen more of that. I doubt it would have weakened the argument because of the independence, but it would have been interesting to see what management's posture really looks like to Carisdale. Right. I looked at the press releases to try to get a sense of how they were telling their story specifically around these events and then around the share offerings. And they weren't, I've, we've seen worse, right? We've seen more promotional. I think they said it's a significant first step. The CEO said we feel the breakthrough designation underlines the potential, I think she said, but she didn't, you know, make any, I thought it was a reasonably guarded, but their actions of raising money, again, we, we talked about this earlier, maybe that's more telling than their words, but yeah, I, I didn't think the company in and of itself was overly promotional, but I think there's Carisdale has identified the two events that seem to increase the value and I think has done a good job raising their questions. You know, the breakthrough therapy was the one that was sort of a big well, the FDA has proved this and it doesn't seem like that's not a automatic yes. It's just the fact that you have a potential in an important area. And Carisdale spent more time on that in the comments in response to other commenters. Yeah. And that's where I sort of fall on this piece. I think it's very thorough. I think like you said, it's, it's to use your phrase, rigorously independent. And I think it is a credit to them. I think the analysis is pretty compelling. I would have loved to have seen, I don't think this sort of token inclusion of here's the risks that we could be wrong is all that useful. But I think the best short ideas show you even if we're wrong, here's what the value of this company should be, and then kind of back into it that way to show you what the risk-reward is. And that's not really in here, I think, because Carousel is confident that the drugs aren't meaningful. So, th so this ends up being a circumstantial case to me. Yeah, I think they make a good case that the data is not all that compelling. They haven't really closed the door that the data is bad or that the drug will not work. If I had to choose, based Carousel does have a pretty good track record overall, and I looked it up before the show in biotech, they're something like three one and one in biotech calls, uh, at, at least. 
so yeah, if I had to choose, like if you said I have to go long or I have to go short, I think the short side is probably more compelling based on this, but I still think it's important to do the work. And I think they there's room to believe that, like you said, the company is not acting with malintent and that they may just continue to give them a shot to develop the drug further. And if the trials are successful, all of a sudden hold on to your hat. And so I guess that's where, you know, Short ideas are harder, and I think it's a compelling independent analysis, and I think it's a good one. That would be, if I were to consider this further, that's where I would want to try to do the work, is to try to really close the door that this data is definitive rather than just strongly telling. Huh. Well, that's interesting. It may not be possible in these early stages. The information may simply not be there. I think that's where I land. This was great analysis. And it was, you know, as I said, independent and introduced some really important information that the market hadn't been paying attention to. But like you said, I don't know if the door is slammed shut here. It cuts both ways if the data is not completely compelling. Like you said, that doesn't necessarily mean that the drug is worthless. We've also seen companies fail in one treatment area only to succeed in another one. And so if proteostasis has cash and they have this IP and they have other areas that they could target, you're in some ways racing against the clock on both sides. If you're short, then you have to watch out. Could they pivot? Could they be acquired? Could they ink a partnership deal? Could they get a lifeline? And if you're long, of course, it's the standard thing. Are you going to, is the company going to run out of money before they get a hit? So, I love the idea. I don't know if it's a conviction one for me or that I'm looking into this any further. And I sometimes a short idea will make me negative on the company and the management overall. I won't say that I drew that conclusion here. It's like you said, it could be worse. I'm a little bit more open than normal to the idea that these are without having done my, just on the strength of Kerastale's argument. Right. Not convinced that this is a nefarious operation, which helps if you want to be short, I guess. (laughs) I think we may be jaded from having heard too many biotech stories over our time studying the market. Oh, yeah. Maybe this (laughs) is bad and we just start... (laughs) We're the anomalous placebo right now. We're the placebos. We're the bad placebos. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, I think we're done. What do you think? I think we're done. I think that was good. All right. See you next time, Daniel. Bye, Mike. Thanks for listening to Seeking Alpha's Behind the Idea. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes and Apple Podcasts. If you have a chance, please leave us a review and rate us on iTunes. If you have feedback, suggested articles, or anything else for Behind the Idea, tweet at DanielSeekingA or at Taylor, or email me at Daniel at SeekingAlpha.com or Mike at MTaylor at SeekingAlpha.com. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on Behind the Idea. Now Dwight's never home, now that Dwight's got a Jones. Dwight was pretty nice when